You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to Thrive. It's good to have you here today. And uh, it's good to start a new sermon series for the summer called The Story of Us. What's your story? You know, in fact, I think at, uh, here at uh, Thrive, we've really enjoyed getting to know each other's story. That is how God has worked in your life. Um, some of the struggles, some of the um, aspirations, some of the dreams and hopes. Um, and we want to be with each other throughout the entire story. And we find in this uh, uh, series, God's story has been going on since the beginning. And each of the stories in the Bible are not just stories about the characters in those, uh, but they're also our story as well in a variety of ways. And so that's kind of what we're looking at, is how God has interacted. By the way, the Bible's not, you know, it's, a theologic, it's not a theological dictionary. You can get things out of it that way. It's not just kind of a, a book to find an answer whenever you want one. It's really a story from beginning to end. It's the story of how God has interacted with humanity. And so um, we are going to be looking at these different characters throughout. And in their struggles, I think we'll see our own. And in the midst of those struggles, we'll also see God's grace and goodness in our lives. Um, Before we go on, I just wanted to say, um, you know, it's kind of a bittersweet day today. Um, we are saying farewell and God bless to Hugo and Ashley um, as they will be traveling to the East Coast and living in a Merritt Island, right? Is that it, Hugo? Merritt Island. And um, they will be um, welcoming a new child to them. I think you've already picked out the name, right? Levi. Levi. Not as in Strauss, Okay. But the Levi from the Bible, Levi, yeah. So there's a lot of good history there. Um, And so afterwards, we're going to have a little reception for them. But they have been integral in so many ways to our our congregation over the last few years, as well as to the campus ministry. And we just want to thank you for all of that and uh, just pray that God's peace and blessings be upon you in this transition, okay? Um, So what we're doing today is not simply something that, you know, we came up with. It's something that actually uh, St. Paul thought about and said to the Corinthian church that we look back and we can see how each of these individuals, as well as the history of Israel, is all about um, setting examples for us. We get to learn from others, okay? So he says in 1 Corinthians 10, now these things happened to them, Israel, as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What he's talking about is the fact that when Jesus came to earth, when, the, when God has, was fulfilling all of his promises that start actually back here in Genesis 3, which we'll get to today, and that whole course of history is coming to a, a climax in the person and work of Jesus, where he comes and he becomes the first human being on this planet, by the way, since Adam and Eve, that was fully human and being fully God. And he's bringing everything together and completing it so that he becomes our future. 
And we can see now each of these biblical characters and the ways that they are like the trueness that God had for us from the beginning and also how they too, just like us, the brokenness of each of these individuals. And yet God's grace runs through it all, which is so fantastic. So all the characters we're going to look at this, uh, this summer, boy, we could go on forever. And in fact, today, I could uh, just Adam and Eve and Genesis 1 to 3, we could spend the entire summer on. Um, but we're not. And I think you're happy that we aren't. Um, but we're going to see from them all sorts of things. And one thing I can't do with any of these, let me tell you, I'd like to, but I can't, is saying, how could they have? I can't say that about, how could Jacob have done, how could Abraham, I can't believe, because I can believe, because I know myself a little, enough to know, in those circumstances, that's probably me too. That's part of what the story of us is about. So today we're going to be starting our, where it kind of all begins, with Adam and Eve in the garden, and we're going to be reading from Genesis 1 to 3 today. Uh, We've got to only choose a little of it. So in Genesis 1, we read on the sixth day, at the evening of the sixth day, this is what it says, Genesis 1, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and the wife, his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So from this story, I think these are the things that we're going to learn from Adam and Eve, the serpent and the garden. That you are, first of all, more glorious than you think. And yet you are more broken than you realize. And finally, God is more faithful and loving than you can imagine. Okay? What I'm hoping from this series, this whole series, is what David Zoll writes in his book, Low Anthropology. He's 
that this series, I'm going to paraphrase him, gives us permission to look at ourselves clearly without hiding behind a scaffold of self-flattery. It frees us from the tyranny of expectation, which fuels resentment of others. Did you get that? I think there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of self-flattery, and there's a lot of resentment of others these days. I've heard so many comments about, I can't believe they get to, and I don't, you know, you name it. And David Zoll astutely says it this way, seeing people as they truly are, I think including yourself, as opposed to how we would have them be, is a crucial ingredient in generating authentic compassion and lasting love. That's the goal. The goal is not to just have a Bible story. You know, The goal is not to try to do some moral improvement in your life in the sense of if you just do these things now, you're going to be so much better, and therefore God will love you even more. That's not the story of the Bible. The story is that we have a bit more compassion <laughs> for other human beings. When we see them, we don't go like, I can't believe they did that. You know? But go like, oh, yeah, they did that. I could do that. I see how this works. I don't really want to see it, but I see it. And then have compassion on them because God actually has had compassion on us all from the beginning. So a clearer reading of the Bible's characters will grow us into a sober assessment of ourselves, a deeper compassion for others, and their life situations, and more than anything else, an outright awe at the God who continues to be faithful to us despite our unfaithfulness, who astounds us with his grace. Okay? So you're more glorious than you think. So at Genesis 1, 26 to 27, such a unique passage in the Bible, and um, in basically world religions, um, I can't really recall another scripture anywhere that gives such an amazing, glorious position for human beings. God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Like I said, we, just this itself could be a week's worth of messages a study. You are created in God's image. In other words, you are here to reflect or image, mirror God. He has given you such a position for you to show his character and who he is to the rest of this material created universe. We get to display his glory in ways that the Andromeda galaxy cannot, in ways that the most majestic sunset cannot, in ways that the rest of the universe cannot. You are glorious, more glorious than you think. And that means no matter who you are, no matter what you've ever done, no matter where you're from, from whatever your background is, no matter how low you can go, and boy, I can go low, in the way I think and act and behave and treat us, doesn't matter. You have objective, 
worth, and value, not about you, but about the God who has endowed you with his image, that you can reflect God's glory. And outside of the Bible, I don't find a text that says we are to reflect his glory, to steward and manage his creation, to have a rule, to be kind of royal priests in Eden. Do you know a priest's position is basically that of the intersection between heaven and earth, between God and humanity, to show God to others and to pray and lift up others to God. That's what a priest's job in the scriptures are, and that's your job. That was Adam and Eve's job. That is our calling. That's who we are, created in God's image. And outside of the Bible itself, there is not a lot of this kind of talk, and yet... At the basis of our Western civilization is an understanding that there is intrinsic worth and value to every human being. But outside of this background, we struggle to find a solid foundation for that. Why are human beings valuable? Why should I treat other human beings as intrinsically valuable or worth, have any worth at all? For example, um, Bertrand Russell, probably one of more extreme examples, but he asserted that everything about human beings in the world, et cetera, should be grounded in reason and science. And that includes even human dignity and worth. And so he wrote this, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system, and that the whole temple of man's achievements must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Do you get what he's saying? You're just a collection of atoms that happen to be randomly here. One day they'll be gone. You got to live with that. There's no purpose, meaning, direction, and everything's going to end up just you know, dis dissipated finally in the end. And so what's human life worth? You know? What's unique about a human being? That's why Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., the Supreme Court Justice, wrote this. He said, I see no reason for attributing to a man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or to a grain of sand. How are you feeling now? And yet all the therapists, all the psychologists, and rightly so, will look at any person in their office or any book that they would read and say, at, write and say, you should value yourself. You are intrinsically worth it. And yet we struggle with self-worth today like never before, with esteem, with um, our identity issues. We struggle with all of this. And... I wonder why we've kind of pulled the rug out from under ourselves in terms of the foundation for 
our own value and worth. You know, some people are trying to move, well, human beings are worth it and valuable because of what we would call human capacity, that we have something different than the animal world, or we have different than uh, just any living thing. And, um, but boy, that's a slippery slope, human capacity, because there's a point, in my, might not be that far in the future, where my human capacity is diminished and my mind doesn't work quite that well. I mean, already I walk out of a um, Publix and wonder, okay, now where did I park my car? Um, that's already, you know. Um, there may be a day I don't have much capacity at all, and then is my, am I not, you know, what's my worth? Or there was a day <laughs> and I, that my parents dealt with a crying, um, allergic, you know, overly demanding little child that had no capacity to care for self. Did I not have value then? Do you understand? Boy, that's a slippery slope to go down if you want to just say, oh, it's because you're worth it, because you're worthy, because you can do something that's worthy. Well, that's not much of a foundation to live on. No. Thankfully, Christianity has set as a bedrock foundation that you have a value beyond whatever you think about yourself. that you are not just a material being. C.S. Lewis um, writes it this way, there are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, art, civilization, these are mortal. And their life is ours as if a life of a gnat, but <laughs> it is immortals whom, with whom we joke work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of the kind, and in fact, the merriest kind, which exists between people who have, from the outset, taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. When you interact with another human being, you're interacting with someone God has made in his image destined for glory, of infinite value and worth to him, and therefore to all of us. I mean, that's why I think Psalm 8, which looks at creation and looks at our position, and it just, it's a psalm of praise and wonder, says it this way. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man? that you're mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've made him given him dominion over the work of your hands. You put all things under his feet. Wow, that is so important today. Not just for people over there. They better think this. Those people are treating other human beings terribly and not in the image of God from the child you know, to the, to, from the fetus all the way through old age, etc. But for you and for me and how we treat others. And sadly, in our day of tribalism, in a day of really brutal um, online discussions as well as just public discourse, what I, 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 I am shocked at and despair over is how 
those who call themselves Christian treat people who disagree with them. Somehow, of all people, we should be believing in the image of God that is innate in everyone, no matter their condition, no matter where they've been, no matter what they say to us or what they believe or what they think. And yet, I am witnessing time and again Christians treating other people as less than what God has called them. James says it this way. He's talking about the tongue and how we can use our tongue for all sorts of things. With it, he says, we bless the Lord, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. He's going like, that just can't be. What are you doing? What's going on that the Christian church is treating people that way? I don't care if it's online. No matter what words we're using, wherever they are, we cannot attitudinally, in our actions or thoughts, treat people less than the way God sees them as truly made in his image, no matter how broken that might be. Every person you meet, as C.S. Lewis says, is not just an ordinary person, but an immortal that is destined for glory or for tragedy, but still for a destiny beyond a few years of this world. And we should be treating to them and caring for them. The last people that should be belittling anyone are Christians. You don't see Jesus doing that, right? And so you are more glorious than you think, and so are they, but you are also more broken than you realize. And that's where we get to Genesis chapter 3, is really the story of why is the world a mess? <laughs> and it starts in a garden. It starts with this interloper. Now the serpent was more crafty than all. What? Who's this? And he speaks. And we're not quite sure. He's a rational animal, but somehow a spiritual being. And in the story itself, it doesn't give us a lot of clues. And yet, if you read the rest of the, the scriptures, you'll start piecing things together at what's going on. It seems like this serpent, well, he's envious of human beings. What's amazing is God's order of things. So human beings are created at the evening of the sixth day. After everything else is created in Genesis 1, the last... Human beings become first and dominant over all. And this creature is going like, wait a minute, that's my place. I should be there. Why are these dirt creatures? Do you realize we're dirt creatures? Why are these mud people the ones that you elevate to the highest? Uh, hey, what? And this serpent is envious and then gets human beings to envy, to covet, just like him. You see, Adam and Eve, the, the deal is not a piece of fruit off of a tree. The issue is really coveting. That is, desiring something that might be good, wisdom, but in a way, on my terms. 
And they start to believe a false story about God, that somehow God is holding something good back from them. Somehow God is the one who's keeping them down, the one who has endowed him, them with such glory and honor to be, have dominion, and yet somehow he's keeping us down. And all of a sudden, that is what gets all of us into trouble. They don't as much fall. You know, I know we talk about the fall in the garden as they fail the test of trusting God beyond um, seeing it immediately. And they don't really fall down, and it's more of an upward rebellion to say, God, we want your place. We think we can do better at that. You're not so good. Um, Let us handle it. And once they were caught in the lie, they hide, they cover up, they blame shift. I think we all can relate to this. Even from childhood, I can, (laughs) anytime I got caught in something, somehow that's when it's good to have a brother and a sister. (laughs) Have you ever noticed that? I don't know what only children do. Do they make up imaginary uh, imaginary friends in order to blame? (laughs) Brothers and sisters were so good at just saying, I didn't think about that. That was, he told me to do that. Yeah. We are more like Adam and Eve than we want to admit. And that's the issue, isn't it? We are more like Adam and Eve than we will ever admit. We are so much just like them in blame shifting, trying to find something else, excusing. David Zoll writes in his book, Low Anthropology, we are less likely to acknowledge our complicity, manipulation, and corner cutting than other people's. Isn't it amazing how that happens? I can see your problems. I cannot see my own, or I don't acknowledge my own. And that's why um, you can call it original sin, that there was an origin and now it's kind of passed down. We're all involved in it. There's a whole conspiracy behind it, in a sense. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 5, you can read this about the first and second Adam. It's a great paragraph that kind of summarizes the whole scriptures in one sense. He says, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. We're all in that Adam situation now. The story of the garden is now told over seven billion different ways, but it's the same old story. That's the story of us. And so these first two points, G.K. Chesterton does a great job of summarizing. He says it this way, insofar as I am man, I am chief of creatures. Insofar as I am a man, I am chief of sinners. Christianity got over the difficulty of combining furious opposites by keeping them both and keeping them both furious. The church was positive on both points. One can hardly think too little of oneself. One can hardly think too much of one's soul. You are glorious beyond imagination. You're also more broken than you realize at the same time. And that kind of leads us to our third point, and the one that's such good news. God is more faithful and loving than you can ever imagine. So Paul goes on in Romans chapter 5 and says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made 
righteous. Jesus is the second Adam. He is the one who solves the issue. That's why, like, um, Jürgen Moltmann says this, every text in the Bible narrates the past in order to announce the future. Already back here in the Garden of Eden, we see that God does not just say, well, that's what happened, but we see what God is going to do to reverse what happened, to solve the problem, to take care of things. When you read the Old Testament correctly, you will find embedded within it again and again, the future is being pointed to. You can see that um, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses talks about a future that out of Judah will arise someone. Um, The end of the Pentateuch, those first five books also, they say another Moses will come, but no one has shown up yet. You will see here, even in Genesis chapter 3, right after Adam and Eve eat of that fruit, are ashamed and hide from God, God speaks to that snake creature directly and says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You know, God could have easily said, you know, oops, yeah, let's start over, you know, and and just gotten rid of the whole mess. Yeah, Adam and Eve didn't work. Let's reboot it. 2.0, 3.0, 4.0. How many times? I don't know. But maybe one time it'll work. Maybe one time they'll pass the test. But he will not give up on his creation. He loves too much. Oh, yeah, he has perfect love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He would have not missed a thing. He had all the glory, all the honor, all the love possible between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity. It's not that he was lonely or he needed something in any way to create this world, let alone to put up with this world. Oh, I'm going to work through it because in the end I'm going to get It's the fact that God is so loving, he expends himself, gives of himself, endows us with such honor and glory and will not give up on us. And it is then through a new Adam, we see what the image of God really looks like. You know, Colossians puts it this way. Paul looks at Jesus and says, he's the image of the invisible God. In other words, Jesus is the perfect reflection of who God is. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. Look at how he lived, what he said, what he did. Everything about him is perfectly God. And at the same time, look at Jesus and you will see the perfect human being just as God intended from the beginning, the next Adam. Jesus reflects God's perfectly in his actions, attitudes, and words. And Jesus' test that he overcomes is not, oh, you know, just a little food in the wilderness. Although, isn't it interesting? The test of Adam and Eve was in a garden. Jesus' test is in a desert, the opposite of a garden that shows you already what God is going to try to reverse. No, the ultimate test for Jesus is, will he entrust himself to his father when God forsakes him for our sake? When he's abandoned on the cross, when he is nailed down and crushed under our sin, 
Is God still good? Is God still loving? Will he trust himself? And Jesus there becomes the least, the last, the ugly one, the God-forsaken one, the sinful one, the homeless one, the poor, the tortured, and eventually the lifeless one. Jesus becomes our death so he can give us his life. That's what God does there. And in that, you see the image of God that God is so expends for you. God so loves you, you can't get over any more of it. I mean, there's just no way to comprehend it all. So this is our story. This is the story of us, Adam and Eve. We failed. We've coveted. We've rebelled. But God ultimately saves and gives and serves us. And as we see this Jesus upon a tree of wood who gives of himself completely, that starts to turn us around, turn us inside out, that we start seeing just in little ways the image of God, imaging that love of God to others in one little selfless act to the next. The story of us, a story of redemption in the end. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this uh, time. Oh, Lord, um, we're amazed um, when we read the scriptures, it's not just a dictionary of ideas or thoughts or theological concepts, but it is a story of your involvement in this world that you so love that you would give your only son. Lord, it's a story of how fallen and broken and messed up we can be, and yet, Lord, you still work through us, and how through ordinary people you do extraordinary things. Help us to learn this in this series. We lift up to you Ashley and Hugo today and their their son Levi. Um, we know you've given innate value and worth to this child already. We thank you, Lord, that um, they are yours. And uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless them on their journey, that you would use them mightily in the future, Lord, that you would grow them as a family together, closer to you, to each other, and that you would show your glory that they would mirror your goodness and love and truth to a world that is in such desperate need, Lord. Bless them, Lord, in all these ways, and we thank you for the gifts they've been to us. Lord, we lift up to you, and we, um, we thank you, Lord, that Bob Beverly now is um, in rehab out of the hospital and that you've brought him through some of the darker times in his uh, journey right now with that um, just with his situation, we pray for Joan and Bob that you would bring your healing there. We lift up to you, Dick, Lord, today and pray your healing be upon him, that you would alleviate these migraines, that he may serve you more actively and fully. Lord, we grieve with the family and loved ones and the friends of Doreen. She's with you now in glory, Lord. It was so quick just a couple days in hospice. She's known you a long time, and we thank you for that. We thank you that her story has just begun now, Lord, that her story is one of glory, that she has been created in your image, and she can reflect your glory now forever, Lord, that she is not a mere mortal, 
you have endowed her with eternal life through faith in your son, Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that whatever celebration, whatever uh, memorial may be, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. Lord God, we um, ask that you would continue to guide and direct us this summer through this series. Prepare us, Lord, to offer ourselves to you with our tithes and offerings in a moment. But also, Lord, prepare us to receive the Lord's Supper this day. I pray, Lord God, um, you know how broken we are and yet how beautiful you've made us. Uh, Forgive us, Lord, how we have broken ourselves against your word, how we have not followed your will, how we have deceived ourselves like Adam and Eve tried to cover up. Forgive us, Lord, for all the things that we have done all the words that we've said, all the attitudes in ways that we have not reflected your goodness and how we have treated others less than the image of God that you've made in them. Forgive us for these things, O Lord. Renew us by your Holy Spirit. And it's only because of the innocent, bitter suffering and death of Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection, Lord, that we come to you this day that we are covered by his blood and given his robe of righteousness. He's the Adam that didn't fail. He's the Adam that has been victorious over death in the grave. And we thank you, Lord, that he calls us brothers and sisters. So bless us now, Lord, and all these things we lift up to you in Jesus' name this day. Amen.